You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole, where tonight Ruby is serving vodka martinis, shaken, not stirred. That's correct. Uh, we're here to talk all things geeky. I hope you've grabbed that drink from Ruby. And, of course, I'm your host, Matthew Rushing, and joining me today are some very special guests. Uh, I'm glad to welcome back associate producer Norman Lau. How's it going, Norm? Oh, it's going fantastically. And Ruby, she shakes well, but she stirs even better. Yeah, ah, uh, goodness. Wow, Norm, you just really have a way with words. I think that's probably why Ruby keeps going home with you and not me. Uh, well, unfortunately, yeah, I can't yeah. get her children's names right, so <laughs> one out of two ain't bad. Well, you know, you got to keep trying, so. And I'm really excited because, you know, he might have been uh, chronologically, you know, you would think that this guy would have already been through this series, but he hasn't yet. Uh He's been through the original series, and now he's making his way through uh, season one of The Next Generation. Luckily, I th- I think that the 602 Club is still standing there. John Champion, welcome to the 602 Club. I'm so glad to be here. So glad to be here. Because I love the whole idea of the 602 Club. And I was so ready to do a show with you guys. And then when I heard about tonight's topic, uh, just nothing was going to stop me from being on this. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> I'm really glad that uh, we could make it work because I know that that you're a huge enthusiast for those uh, spy movies and the, and the genre, especially from the '60s. Yeah, and uh, you you kind of love all of those that were out at that point. And uh, this tonight, if you haven't guessed, we are going to be talking about the one, the only James Bond. Uh, this series has been in production since 1962. Uh, there was a brief hiatus between. 1989 and 1995 if you didn't know it's also the third highest grossing series behind harry potter and the marvel cinematic universe so goodness we've had six leading men and even more portraying of course the bond ladies uh that's ladies portraying the bond ladies not men portraying that that's we haven't crossed that line yet but who knows i mean we got bond 24 coming out and it's uh, the 21st century so that could happen but uh guys for you, we have a, I think a a great mixture of of ages here tonight. So, what was your entry for Bond, John? I think I'm pretty sure that my first theatrical exposure to Bond was Spy Who Loved Me, 1977, okay, yeah. mm. and um, I remember though that. Uh, well, I remember a couple of things. I, I remember being excited at the prospect of James Bond will return. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, the original James Bond will return was Octopussy. But then it changed to Moonraker when also in 1977, Star Wars was a huge success. So, yeah, it, that that was very exciting to look forward to thinking, oh, there's going to be more James Bond. But I remember specifically my father taking me to that movie, and I remember him telling me about this other James Bond. James Bond is a thing that existed before The Spy Who Loved Me. And 
him introducing me to the Connery movie. So I can't really say which is the earliest movie that I saw when, but I'm pretty certain Spy Who Loved Me was my first theatrical exposure to Bond. Wow. And and knowing that, that the very next film for you was going to be Moonraker yeah. with the lasers <laughs> and, oh goodness, uh, wow, that's... Which okay to a seven year old is, is super great. awesome, yeah. <laughs> and and then you stop being seven, and you right, go, right. oh oh, that's what they did in that movie. Moonraker's got a lot of great stuff in it, but it yeah, does. In retrospect, whew, yeah, ouch, ouch. Well, and it has a, you know, it, it's not a terrible idea, but when they seriously when they do start shooting lasers at each other, you're just like really yeah. really and you know it it it's a little bit too buck rogers for its own good oh yeah 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 so. totally yeah what about you norm what was your entry into bond well that's where i'm coming in i'm coming in at moonraker that was the first theatrical bond that i saw and it really did catapult off of the the popularity of star wars and many things did at the time you know battlestar galactica did you know, james bond did and uh, i loved the fact that you had to have blue lasers versus red lasers. You had to. <laughs> yeah, because there was so much going on in that final space fight scene. Yeah. And you had to keep track of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And James Bond chasing down Hugo Drax and having that really awesome wristwatch dart gun that was just, you know, one of the coolest things of the time. But Moonraker was. And uh, I loved... Roger Moore. Uh, I loved Lois Childs' giant hair as Dr. Holly Goodhead. Um, there were so many things that were, again, for that, I would have been five. Um, that wow, were that's just, a little early to yeah. see Bond attempt re-entry. And it was, yeah, it was, hey. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I loved the dart gun kind yeah, of tech. Yeah. And that was, for a five-year-old, that's what I was focusing on. And then later on, you know, when you get back to Connery and, you know, when you're in your teens, you're like, oh, that's what I see meant. what this yeah. is all about. It's like, <laughs> oh, I get it. It's kind of like when you watch Grease as a kid, you don't get any of it. And then you watch it again. You're like, my parents let me watch this. Oh, right. oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a side note here. You know, Grease as a six, seven year old, whatever it was, you know, oh, it's great. It's singing and it's dancing. And then a year later, you look back on it and you go, wow, Grease is 30-year-olds being horrible to each other yes, and singing yep. about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Just, oh, so traumatic. Well, for me, I'm I'm a little behind you guys in the sense that uh, my first entry for Bond was Goldeneye in the theater. And, you know, Bond had, had been out of the game for a while, you know, since Timothy Dalton and 1989. And I was just a little too young then to have, have seen his last with License to Kill. And then, of course, it was a big deal that they were going to be bringing Bond back. And then they had Pierce Brosnan and what a great choice for Bond at that point. You know, he looks the part, he acts the part. And then, of course, for me as well, it was the game that came out. And, you know, all of my friends played it. I'm still terrible at the, you know, the actual multiplayer mode. I can I can play the actual game, uh, but multiplayer mode, I just get destroyed because all of my friends were so good, they just, you know, they start killing me every time I respawned at that point because they knew Golden exactly Golden gun mode, bro. Yep, Golden exactly. gun mode. Yeah, um, exactly. But... <laughs> I remember, too, 
just being captivated by that movie. It is, I think, in so many ways, it's it's just quintessential Bond. And he just picked right back up, uh, combining, to me, a, a lot of, um, you know, Moore and Connery together to kind of make his own Bond. And uh, I just, I loved the movie. And then, of course... They brought them all back out. You know, at that point, DVD is hitting, and I I ended up owning them all on DVD at that point and and watching through them all and and finding my favorites. And so it was great Uh, to me. I'm so glad that they finally decided to to bring it back, uh, that Brosnan finally got to play the part because he was supposed to play it way back when, when when it was Dalton, and then uh, Remington Steele picked him back up and kept him from you know, being able to play that part and he finally got to do it. So uh, this is the question everybody asks, you know, who's your favorite Bonds? And uh, again, this is a show where geeks get to get together and talk about things. We're not here to fight. We're just here to have a great conversation. So, you know, if it's somebody's favorite, that's fine. You know, um, I am sure that we we all kind of have our favorites. So, you know, John, for you... uh, who would be like if you're going to rank the bonds how would you rank them and then just kind of you know why do you rank those first you know say two or three up there at at the very top here's what's difficult about doing that and here's what's difficult about ranking any of the bond movies it changes from day to day and and it's like if (laughs) i just said to you okay tell me your favorite movie now i might have about five movies that i can say these are favorite movies of all time. Citizen Kane, North by Northwest. You know, these are things that I know I'll always go back to and always love. But to me, very often, the question comes to what do I want to watch right now? Yeah. If I had to go grab something off the shelf, what do I want to watch right now? And the problem with the Bonds is that all the actors are good, except for George Lazenby. <laughs> but all the actors are good for what they're doing, for what the role demanded of them. You know, and sometimes they have good movies, sometimes they have bad movies. For every Doctor No or From Russia with Love, there's also a Diamonds Are Forever. You know, for more, for every The Spy Who Loved Me, um, or actually, arguably, he's better in The Man with the Golden Gun. There's also, yeah, there's also an Octopussy or whatever. So everybody has their good movies, everybody has their bad movies. And wait, you don't like Bond dressed up as a clown at the end? (laughs) Come on. Right, right. Um, So the difficulty I thought was this you can kind of take the actors and typify them by how they play the role. And at the top of the list, you probably have Connery and Daniel Craig doing the same kind of bond, or at least a similar approach to bond. You know, the, the psychology of the character is very similar for both of those guys. All right. So maybe they sit at the top of my list, depending on how I'm feeling (laughs) and what I want to watch at that moment. Right. Right after that, then, I put Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan together in a category. Because even though Brosnan was this huge breath of fresh air, when you watch his movies now, after having watched Daniel Craig, you go, wow, he was a lot closer to the Moore Bond Mm -hmm. than he was to the Connery Bond, you know? Now, I've got a lot of love for Timothy Dalton. 
I think he's fantastic as an actor. I love him. Well, of course, Flash Gordon was one of the greatest movies ever made, and he's <laughs> awesome in it. Okay, um, he was in Chuck too. He, he was I in mean, Chuck. He, he had a great turn in Doctor Who um, and the Rocketeer. And the Rocketeer, the yes, fabulous, yes. You know, so he's just awesome in everything that he does. However, he got stuck in some terrible movies. And it was that whole in-between period where we didn't know what was going to happen to James Bond after Roger Moore had left. And were we going to have uh, Pierce Brosnan? Were we not? And they're just not that good. Now, he has great moments in those movies, but he didn't have the best material. I wish he had done four or five movies. And then I think he really would have nailed it. And we would be having a very different conversation right now. So then at the bottom of that list... I've got George Lazenby. Lazenby is good at certain things. He's He's got a great look. He's certainly good in the physical scenes. He's just not a strong actor. And from what I have read, he was crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's so. a little bit out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, that's the way that I had to approach it because I, I felt wrong doing a this is the best Bond or this is the the best actor because, you know, it's kind of like picking an Academy Award. You've got four or five or what are they? You nominate like 10 people now. You know, you got several actors who are all really good because they all did a great job at what they were asked to do. And I, I think that all of these guys have succeeded in that character in very different ways. So if I have to go with a style, well, right now I'm really into the Daniel Craig Bond. So if I had to pick a movie off the shelf, it's like, man, I could go watch Skyfall right now because it's awesome. And we'll talk about favorite movies in a moment. Or I could go pick Spy Who Loved Me because it's awesome for that character of Bond. So that's my list. Combining them. I I probably broke the rules, Matt. I'm sorry. I'll never be asked back again. (laughs) No, not at all. That's what the 602 Club is is really all about is, is just kind of, I like the way that you phrase it because... It is very, it's fluid, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think that after Quantum of Solace, anybody thought, maybe Craig's not going to be my favorite. Maybe he's going to be more like, you know, uh, a Brosnan, where he got one good one, and then the other one's like, eh. But of course, Skyfall came out, and God, I could watch that movie anytime, (laughs) anywhere, any day. Right. Because it's just that good. Right. Um, So yeah, and it having that be... Uh, where it is you know like the star trek films too you know um i have my favorites but i can go pick off any of them on the shelf and watch them because there's a reason that i i like that film you know um Mm -hmm. i I don't do that with nemesis i I always just get that one um (laughs) but any of the others i'll just kind of pick off at, at certain points because i'm craving whatever was in there you know yeah. And that's the same with when you have that many Bond films. When we've got 23 of them on the shelf right now, every once in a while I'll just be like, you know, I just I just want to watch some Thunderball. Yeah. There you because go. there's yeah. things I like about that one. Right. So, uh what about you, Norm? What what uh, when you think about the Bonds that we've had, uh who have been some of your favorite portrayals and 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 why for you? Well, I I agree a lot with what Mr. Champion was saying because what came before is kind of like um, informing what is coming now. And Sean Connery, he set the bar. Yeah. And he set a certain level of style and a certain level of 
um, expectation for James Bond. And in doing so, James Bond became this greater entity so that everyone expected all of these other James Bonds to come after Connery to find some way to shoehorn what he did with James Bond into their performances. But it's nice to have someone after Connery like Roger Moore, well, George Lazenby, and then we'll go into Roger Moore, that had such a really different, delicate approach to James Bond. Connery was rough. He was tough. He was no-nonsense. And he was just getting into the rhythm of what I'd call the great relationship that he had with Q Branch. He wasn't really dependent on it, but as the films got more successful, Q Branch became a little bit cooler, a little bit trendier, and everyone started going for the really cool gadgets. And that pretty much ended when he finished off with Diamonds Are Forever. And then Roger Moore, he, because he had that experience with The Saint, and he was really smooth and debonair and a little bit softer touch that coupled with more Q branch created this whole other kind of personality. And, and I think because I grew up with him with Moonraker, that really kind of got me more of uh, being his fan earlier on. And then Sean Connery uh, after I studied more of his films. So Gosh, it's it's so hard. I don't think I can rank them really. I know that's an unfair answer and it doesn't really please the crowd, but I agree with with what you guys are saying. It's I loved I love Timothy Dalton because Timothy Dalton was the bond that could have been. Yeah. You know, well, he's he the, didn't he's the proto Craig too. I mean, his bond I think so. is, is very much like the Craig bond. He's hard, he's He's really dangerous. You never know what he's going to do, and he's willing to go off and do whatever he has to do to get the job done. Uh, and he's really violent too in the way that he deals with situations. Uh, there's, there's not, there's a lot of rough edges at that point with Bond. I think, and and to me, it's like he was just, you know, twenty years too early for people to really get what you know they were trying to do with Bond and 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 what Dalton was bringing to the role. Yeah. Let, let me throw out an idea here, because, uh, uh, Norman, as you're talking, I, I'm thinking about how, you know, there are a lot of people who say, OK, Connery is Bond because he just in my mind, he, he encapsulates, he typifies everything that Bond is about. He's the first Bond that I saw. And, and that's that. And he set the bar there for everybody who comes after. I will compare to Connery. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair argument. Absolutely. But I wonder if um, you get to a point a little later where in the whole spy game, you have the gentleman spy and you've got Napoleon Solo from The Man from Uncle and you've got John Steed from The Avengers and mm-hmm. you've got these guys who aren't brutal killing machines. You know, Dr. No, we see Bond kill somebody in cold blood and you cannot picture um, Roger Moore doing that. Although he's got some pretty interesting scenes he could pick apart and live and let die and uh, a couple of places in his movies. But I wonder if, you know, you get to a point where the way those movies were made in the 60s, you don't get into the psychology of the character a lot. And we really need a movie like Skyfall. We need Daniel Craig and we need that take on it to totally deconstruct the character, totally rip it apart and rebuild that character from from the ground up. So you can kind of almost go back and justify why the Connery Bond is the way he is. I think as those movies aged, 
we kind of look at those and we kind of look at Connery through uh, a bit of nostalgia. Well, sure. And, you know, and, and we say, yeah. well, well, he he's like that because he's like that. He he kills people and he kisses the girl and then <laughs> he goes home wearing a nice suit and driving a nice car. And that's all we ask of that character. A more sophisticated audience now in the 2000s, that's an audience who says, well, why is he like that? And can we really justify him being the way he is, even if he portrays things that we don't like? Um, sorry, go ahead. No, and and I agree. And what I think is great about their approach with Casino Royale, I remember walking out of that film saying, this is the James Bond that I've been waiting for. All of the other James Bonds have been really good and serviceable up to a point. But now you're seeing the evolution, the deconstruction, and the repackaging of this icon to a much smarter and internet-savvy audience. Because now you're dealing with the technology and everyone under technology back in the 1960s and 1970s that was dream technology that was only mi5 or mi6 could have that only the spy genre could have that only these big budgeted operations and clandestine organizations could have that like control you know or smirsh or specter now you can walk into any store you can buy an iPad or a smartphone or any kind of gadget, the iWatch, and now you can become clandestine and covert all in your own lonesome if right. you want to. And that is nice how they fit that into the new storytelling because these types of resources are very comfortable in Daniel Craig's hands. And they, he uses them very ubiquitously because this is what they use now. This is yeah. what they use in real time. So Casino Royale for me and Daniel Craig really started to overtake a lot of my list because the movies were high quality. The storytelling was high quality and we're seeing where we wanted to see James Bond vulnerable to a point which helps inform his actions later on and turn him into this well-educated, well-rounded and experienced spy Right up until we get to Dr. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is where I felt Skyfall ended. I, I'd said this to Matthew before. I felt that you could just see him. He tosses the hat. He says hi to Money Penny. Uh-huh. He sees the quilted leather door, goes, yep. sees M, and then boom, here's your next dossier. You know, yeah. and now you're going to Jamaica. Yeah. Well, and with with all of these characters, they all have to do something different to the character they have to make it work for for them and i think it's interesting that in in each film even if um you know you don't end up liking say lazenby or or Moore or dalton or any of these guys they they bring something to the character that is uniquely them and 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 they they find a way even if they only have one film to kind of make it to their own and that's a really interesting thing with this character that he's malleable enough that you can you can put your own spin on it um and um i really i really enjoy that about watching each one of these guys and it's just about in the end which one is more interesting and a two how many movies they get to play with you know um lazenby is not the smartest person when it comes to 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 filmmaking in the sense that he says no to doing more bond movies um, you know, Dalton just doesn't get a chance to play anymore. Um, Brosnan 
just isn't serviced with great material in a lot of the ways that I think Roger Moore isn't serviced with a lot of great material in some of his films. So, you know, I, I don't really fault the man behind the Bond. Uh, I, I really kind of fault the writers at that point. It's, I, I think it's really their fault when they don't service these guys um, with with the material needed. Because, you know, even Connery, Diamonds Are Forever is just horrible film. It's just not very good to me. So, you know, even Connery, the great, you know, the the original James Bond, he can be in a terrible Bond movie. And uh, that might be partly his fault, but I also just think that it's just not a very good story and it's just not a very good film. So It just looks like a 70s cop show, you know. It really it's, does. Yeah, I, I just yeah. kind of expect Shaft to walk out at any moment, you know. Uh, so that's, well, that and, and Never Say Never Again, the, the oh quote-unquote non-Bond yeah. movie. Ooh. I will go there. I'll go there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you heard us, um, Norman. <laughs> you know, uh, on a whole, though, for me, the 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 bond that's at the top is is always Connery, just because he he sets the like Norman says he sets the bar. You know he he that's the first bond that we see. You know when it comes to the chronology of the films, for me at the bottom is always kind of more because his campiness and the character at that point with his films, not necessarily him, leaves him at the bottom, kind of with Lazenby where. Um, and in the middle, all those guys are great. You know, I like different things about them. Um, I actually kind of really like uh, License to Kill as a Bond film. I think it's a really interesting movie. Is it the best? No, but it has some real... Uh, they just do some things they never tried before, which I, I really enjoyed. So all of those guys, you know, Craig, Brosnan, and Dalton, to me, they're all kind of tied for just being good bonds who had some great outings or maybe okay outings um but i i like what they did with the the their their movie so or movies is that for the for those guys and you know like you said john and and you were talking about as well norm the way that craig is deconstructing this character that we've all seen and and uh, you know i've read about three or four of the actual bond books you know the way that they're kind of bringing this character back to his roots, I think is really cool. And, um, making him a bond, you know, obviously for the 21st century, because, uh, he, he needs to be a little bit different to kind of fit in our world. And, uh, you know, M says to bond, uh, and golden eye that she thinks he's a dinosaur, a misogynistic dinosaur. well, they don't really fix that in his films uh, with Brosnan, but they needed to with Craig. And I th- I think we can all probably agree that they found a way to make that character relevant and and more real than maybe he's ever been before. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, that has to be the hardest thing in the world that here you adopt this wildly popular, well-known franchise character world for this character to inhabit and the times change you know when you don't have a cold (laughs) war anymore norman as you were saying when you have technology that far exceeds anything that was dreamed up in the original movies um or the you know say the first 12 movies or so um 
you really have a difficult time being able to justify who this guy is and why he does what he does. Now, you could go the Uncle Root, they're making a new movie, and it will be a period piece that takes place in the early 60s. All right. So you can get around some of that and and really force them into the the restrictions that would have been there from uh, from that period. But with Bond, you know, um, I kind of liken it to Mad Men now. You oh, watch yeah, a show like yeah. Mad Men, and and here are these people trapped in this very different world from the world that we know. But everything that they do, you can kind of justify the weird behaviors that the characters have. They're idiosyncratic with the way that we think that people would behave. There are similarities, of course, uh, that you go, oh, okay, well, even though that's 45 years ago or 50 years ago, I still get that. I understand that motivation that that character did that thing that he did or she did. Um, But other times you just go, wow, that would never happen now. And with Bond, it's kind of a similar thing. You you look at some of what the characters do in a, in a movie made in 1964, and you go, wow, that just wouldn't fly for an audience today. So the difficulty is twofold for the creators of those movies now, not just to write a great story, but also take a character that comes with a lot of baggage and be able to make it interesting and fresh and relatable for an audience that and you know hats off to them that this latest reinvention because the whole franchise needed to be reinvented that reinvention with daniel craig has really paid off and it probably is just the perfect combination of writer director producer actor all kind of coming together and gelling at the right moment. It didn't with Quantum of Solace, <laughs> but agreed. Yeah, yeah, but with Casino Royale and Skyfall in particular, uh, for me, I, I feel like it's it's just right on the money. Well, and then you run into the thing that with Quantum, they're in the writer's strike and they're making a movie, yeah. and it's very difficult for you know Mark Webb to be responsible for needing to rewrite things and direct a film and make sure it comes in on time. It's just a colossal, you know, uh, cluster mess, we're going to call it. Cluster uh, fornication? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it, it, it's, I don't really fault anybody on that film. There's not a lot that they could do at that point. And so, uh, unless they just pull the plug and wait, which at that point you've put too much money into this and you just got to go with it. So, you know, it's it's not the worst Bond movie out there. So, yeah. you know, and that's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a question for you, fellas, uh-huh. uh, because, you know, we're we're in this uh, the issue of trying to rank bonds and, and trying to figure out, you know, who's his favorite. Does Sean Connery hold a little bit more in that category because he has the more traditional, more well-established villains in the James Bond universe? Oh. Because... We love the dichotomy between the hero and the villain, you know, and a hero is only as good as his as his villain or as his nemesis. And Sean Connery, by and large, had probably the strongest of the rogues gallery because they all appeared at least at the first time or for the first time in his films. You know, Ernest Stavro Blofeld, let's face it. Iconic. Yeah. You know, you had the all Enigma three of them. Spectre. Right. <laughs> yeah. All three of them. Um, you, so you have uh, guys like... Uh, Odd job, Goldfinger. Uh, we're talking about these are like Titanic villains and and very iconic. Where you know you've the advertising marquees, the the magazines, they all they always have 
you know, Ajab throwing his hat and like severing off marble helmets, you know, or statues. And you have Goldfinger with his famous line, you know, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. These types of elements with Sean Connery um, are so strong and so iconic. It's it's almost hard to to find like who are the great villains for the other Bonds that give them that type of that type of way to leverage later on for them to remember. I mean, aside from maybe say Scaramanga, who was Christopher Lee was amazing in that, mm-hmm. but it, it's hard to kind of like grasp like the big villain names for like say Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton or um, or uh, Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, what do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I mean, this is where James Bond gets into that period where it's, um, you know, it, it's science fiction. It, we, we look at it as science fiction as opposed to just a straight up spy movie. And that has to do with the era in which this is made. You know, even in 1962, we, we've got a foot in the space age. A spy movie before that period, before James Bond, was just, uh, you know, Who's the killer? How do we get the secret documents from one place to another? And it's all very real world. When you introduce James Bond, now you're interesting, introducing this element of science fiction, and everything is way bigger than life and and way bigger than reality. I mean, you've got you've got a base and a volcano. <laughs> you know, you've <laughs> Whoa, got I've, that's like a slow Tuesday here yeah, in Washington. Right. I mean, right. that's you know. what Mount St. Helens is for. Right. So, so it's, it's just shockingly over the top and, and beautifully designed and, and archetypal bad guys. So I think Norman, what you're describing is that it, to me, it, it's two things. It, it's yeah. The, the, the look, the design, the over-the-top character, Blofeld with the scar down his eye, you don't forget that image. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also that sort of like James Bond was there. They, they beat everybody else to the punch with this right formula. They did it first, and they did it better than anybody, and they continue to do it better than anybody. There have been a lot of spy movies and a lot of spy TV shows come along after that, a lot of them very good, but it always takes Bond to come back and show them how it's really done, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I think that, yeah, I, I think that the villain plays a pretty important part of that, but the villain also goes along with all the trappings of villainhood. Uh, I'll say that the, um, you know, we can fault Moonraker as a pretty terrible movie in many respects. You don't forget those blue and red lasers and you don't forget that space station and you don't forget the underground lair that has a space shuttle in it (laughs) just because you can, you know. And Jaws, of course. And Jaws. You don't forget Jaws, you know. So, yeah, and there have been a lot of lackluster villains after that. But then you also go, okay, well, what what does a villain look like to an audience in the 21st century? No, that's a fair point. Yeah, You know, because now now we live in a different world where there's not a Cold War necessarily. Um, Our enemies are a little... They're very different. They cut cut from a different cloth. They're not as understood. It's not as black and white. So... um, you know, the movies trying to catch up with modern expectations may feel like, well, if we did that, if we did that big villain, would anybody buy it? Or would they just think that we're doing a parody of ourselves from 50 years ago? 
Yeah, it's funny because I always think these days of, when I'm thinking of villains, I always think of Blofeld from On Your Majesty's Secret Service because I really like Telly Savalas' Blofeld. Uh, it's a little more realistic mm-hmm. uh, in his portrayal, and he's he's very cunning, and, and he's like maniacally evil while being debonair all at the same time, so it plays it really well. Um, you know, License to Kill Again, if Sanchez's... Um, drug money and, and drug running. I mean, how relevant is that still in, in that part of the world? You know, Alec from uh, GoldenEye and his whole revenge uh, against uh, who he used to work for, again, pretty relevant. You know, I think of that as a great villain. Um, and, and then he doesn't course, love seeing Sean Bean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sean Bean Let's is go. just He's fantastic great. in that role. And then, you know, I always, uh, these days, I end up thinking of... Um, Silva from Skyfall. And again, his kind of idea, which is very much the same as Goldeneye, that it's the revenge against the the organization you used to work for. So, um, yeah, it really does. I, I think you're right, Norm. In a lot of ways, Bond movies take great villains. To me, what made Sean great as is as, as Bond is that he's just Bond. I mean, I... Sean Connery to me, yeah, he's he's played a dragon, you know, he's done all these other things, you know, he, he's uh, whatever. But to me, he's he is Bond, you know, they, they're one and the same. And uh, all those other guys, uh, they may or may not be Bond like that, um, and and most of them aren't. And and so that's the thing for me that kind of set Sean apart from the rest of the group. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to rectify, you know, and that's why in the end I'll, I'll end up pulling off any one of these guys off the shelf and popping their movie in just because I I like something about what they do. Um, so for you guys, as we're talking, what are those Bond movies that you just love to pull off the shelf that you might do more than the others? You know, um, we've talked, uh, obviously, I think all of us, we'd pull Skyfall off just about any time. Um, but, uh, yeah, what are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do something for you uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they just do it better than maybe the other Bond movies do? Uh, first of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, and it's true. Nobody does it better than Bond. It makes uh, me feel sad for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know. Well, first of all, you get back to me tomorrow, and it'll be a different list, mm-hmm. just because, like I said, it, it changes from day to day, hour to hour. Um, but I, I looked at my top three, and I think that they're my top three, all for the same reason. So my top three are Skyfall, Goldfinger, and The Spy Who Loved Me. And Skyfall and, uh, yeah, uh, actually, yeah, uh, Skyfall, Goldfinger, and The Spy Who Loved Me, they're all the third film for their respective Bond actors. And I think for whatever reason, for those actors, for those movies, that's where the, the actor and the character and the movie met and gelled and is sort of the definitive portrayal of that bond. So let me kind of go backwards here. Spy Who Loved Me, to me, sets the tone of the best of the Roger Moore movies. 
he has better moments in other movies. And there are other movies that may be arguably better written of the Roger Moore Bond movies. But overall, it kind of all comes together. It has the way over-the-top gadgets. Who doesn't love a submarine car? You know, it's got, got a, one in the back. Yeah, exactly. You've got an over the top villain with Stromberg, not as memorable as Blofeld, but he's got a great undersea lair. And that just, you know, I always loved that. Um, Goldfinger. You've, and don't forget the introduction of Jaws. Yeah. And the introduction to Jaws. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so Goldfinger, you've got, you know, Connery's third movie, and you've got all of the elements that you think about when you think of the Connery Bond. You have the Aston Martin DB5. You've got that gorgeous Glenn Plaid suit. You've got some great Bond girls. You've got an over-the-top villain. And like Jaws, you have an over-the-top henchman. So all the elements came together that if you had to point to one Connery movie and say, this is how the others, to me anyway, are ranked, that sets the bar for the other Connery movies. Now, Skyfall is a little bit different only because I feel it accomplishes those things for Daniel Craig. It, it cements him in the character. The story is good. The character is good. It's a great looking movie. Everything sort of fell into place. But I also think that it's... For now, it is the critical, the essential James Bond movie. Because Norman, like you were saying, the next assignment is Dr. No. Even if it's not really. That's not Bond 24. We don't know that that's Bond 24. It's probably not Bond 24. But you could restart the whole thing. And now at the end of Skyfall, you started out big and you got progressively smaller and smaller and smaller until you got to the end of that movie where everything is taken away from James Bond and you've justified every bad decision, every good decision, every bad behavior, every good behavior, everything that is maybe broken and everything that works in Bond's psyche with that movie. They needed to make that movie. At some point, where they made it now or they made it 10 movies ago, they had to make that movie at some point to justify who James Bond is. So to me, that's kind of essential viewing. And that's why those three movies always stand out to me. Um, Now, I'll give Brosnan his due as well. And Matt, this might surprise you because my favorite Brosnan movie is not Goldeneye, although I think it's a very good movie. I feel like Goldeneye, um, it has all the elements, but it has all the elements in a way that are saying, hey, look, we're a James Bond movie. You know, here's the car, here's the suit, here's the girl. And aren't we glad and relieved (laughs) to meet Pierce Brosnan (laughs) as James Bond? Um, I'm actually going to go with Brosnan's second movie, Tomorrow Never Dies. Simply because I, I feel like Die Another Day is a mess. And it is. And uh, it has moments, but it, but it's a mess. Uh, the world is not enough is boring. And I feel like it. Whoa, just... whoa, whoa. <laughs> Christmas Jones. Christmas played, Jones. Yeah. Played by yeah. the wonderful Denise Richards. You don't buy that as a nuclear physicist. Hey, you know what? If you want to watch the best Denise Richards movie, I go with Undercover Brother. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. That's a fantastic yet another spy genre movie. And another genre. That's a great. That's a great Denise Richards joint right there. Yep. Um, So I'm going to go with Tomorrow Never Dies. Usually not the favorite of Pierce Brosnan movies, but 
I think something about it is that he inhabits the character. It's not a movie that feels like it has to rely on every James Bond trope that came before it, although we get some of it. We get the -the over-the-top bad guy. We get the the stealth boat, so we get some cool tech in there. But it's a stealth boat. It's a movie that I Does that even make sense? uh, Sure. In their world, (laughs) yes. Um, But it was a movie that tried, maybe not always successfully, to do something interesting with the idea of the media. And sure, in a world of Ted Turner's and Rupert Murdoch's and whoever else you want to throw in there, it has something to say, got a little bit of resonance. So, um, yeah, so that Tomorrow Never Dies is kind of my uh, my odd choice, my black sheep choice for uh, for Bond favorites. Well, Norman, what about you? Well, I could go and say, like, you know, John, I agree with pretty much your entire list. So I'm going to go for the also rands on these on my list because I can pull Goldfinger off the shelf and watch it on repeat the entire time for pretty much every single reason why we've said so. But for me, the also rand for the Sean Connery portion of James Bond would be Thunderball. Yeah, because Thunderball. I thought Thunderball capitalized on what Goldfinger did and pushed it to 11 just enough so that it didn't become ridiculously campy and overdone. You know, you had the open, the, the big song at the very beginning um, and you had the giant Disco Valente boat. You had Emilio Largo and who doesn't love a villain with an eye patch? <laughs> you know, you have Domino with all of her little bitty quips. And I think one of the best all-time lines written for a James Bond movie is when uh was it Fiona Volp mm-hmm. she was in the in the bathroom she was soaking in the tub and then John Connery sits down and she goes would you mind handing me something to put on and he hands her her shoes yeah yes. <laughs> I thought that was just that yeah. caps encapsulated for me exactly what James Bond was about and again it, you, you you had a lot of that play on uh, the character with you know, Pussy Galore and in Goldfinger. And again, just Thunderball just kind of ramped it up just a little bit for me. Uh, I love Skyfall, but you know, without Casino Royale, we wouldn't be here. So I loved Casino Royale and what uh, Daniel Craig just basically did to reintroduce the character. And I loved his showdown um, at the poker table at the very end. Uh, I loved the way that he just, he was broken at the end. And you don't see James Bond broken ever. You, you don't see him cut. You don't see him bleed. You don't see him perspire. You don't see him torn or disheveled in any way. And I thought that was pretty neat how they handled that throughout the course of the movie. And you saw a little bit of the behind the scenes from when he left completely together, when he got slapped around in the hotel and during those fights, when he got poisoned and when he came back completely together again. You know that there was a point in the middle where he had to keep his cover, keep his cool, and show you how he had to dig deep to stay uh, in that James Bond look and feel, you know, when he returned back to the poker table. So I thought that was kind of neat how they handled that. Uh, George Lazenby only really had one shot, so it is what it is. I really liked Living Daylights. I I, it, I guess I was around maybe 14, 15 when that came out, and I thought that I thought that I finally got the James Bond that I wanted to get in um, in Timothy Dalton. And who doesn't love like sledding down like the Swiss Alps? On a cello. I mean, yeah. come on. And at the very end, seeing the cello with the 
um, with the bullet hole in it. The, the cello took one for the team. I thought that was great. And Miriam Debo was fantastic. I'm rambling because this is what happens when you talk about James Bond. You just ramble because there's so much. There's 50 years of films worth in my brain. So it's really kind of... So yeah, I, I like kind of like where John was with his first picks. I will take some of these uh, also rands as my second picks because on a rainy day, I could pretty much throw them in and watch them and enjoy them just as much. Well, I like that uh, I'm different than than you guys, except for the one. Uh, obviously, Skyfall is on the list. It's, it's up there near the top. It's my second. Uh, and, and literally, I can. I can just put it in at any moment. I, I, I would watch the whole thing. I don't, I don't care if I just saw it. Um, I feel like it's that good. The Bond movie, though, and, and this will probably be weird for a lot of people listening, that I've seen the most, though, is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I just really love this movie it's not lazenby but it's the story yeah it's it's a it's a big bold different story and i don't even know if connery could have pulled it off because it it required um a more nuanced bond than i think maybe he was that he would have been capable of at that point and i love 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 that they kind of explained why james bond does not really get involved with girls any more than one night stands by this film because he you know you talked about him not being broken but it, he's broken by the end of this movie because he's fallen in love uh, he gets married and spoiler alert she dies because of him uh, at the end of the film and he doesn't really want to be responsible for that for anybody else it, at least he doesn't want to feel it you know he'll be responsible for other ladies deaths but he doesn't want to feel it. He doesn't. He doesn't want to feel like um, he really was the person responsible. So, I I think that it's just a really underrated movie, and to me, it just has one of the best plots of the early Bond films. Uh, it's outlandish and crazy, yes, but the the character moments for the character of Bond, which is something we had never seen before, and that's really what I I respond to, and and. Diana Rigg is magnificent in that film. I, I just love her. She is beyond beautiful for me in that film. And, and so I think that's the, the other reason I could pop that one in at any time. John, I I love GoldenEye. It's my entry into the, the movies. And, and I think that the part that always won me over was when he's driving the tank. Yeah. He busts through a thing and then he fixes his tie. Yes, yes. And I was like, oh, God, that's just it's it's the way that where, you know, Craig jumps on the train and he fixes his shirt. It's cuffling. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, those little moments that, you know, Brosnan just was able to pick up and it was effortless. He He's not trying. He just is. And I like that for that movie, he's a little bit raw as a character like he's he's not as refined as you might expect him to be uh, and it's because he's going up against somebody that actually meant something to him so I thought that was really cool the way that they built that into the story and they played with that whole cold war thing without having to have a cold war anymore so I thought that was really smart and and then for me my favorite uh Connery film was actually Dr. No and it's because of all the little nuances you see that you never see again in with Bond, like him actually being a detective. You know, like uh, he doesn't just 
jet off somewhere and things happen to him like he's actually detecting yeah um you know he he pulls out a strand of his hair and he puts it on his door there to see if anybody comes in uh and, and rustles around in his closet uh those kind of things i I was like, okay, this is this is a real spy. He's not just a super spy. Uh, I, I like that. And then I really love from Russia with love because he's fully formed at that point, and then he'll move into Goldfinger. But for me, Russia with love is is just understated enough to make it feel a lot more realistic. Um, so those are the ones that I, for me, if I'm gonna pull things off the shelf, I end up kind of watching over and over again as compared with the others and then if it's Dalton it's usually I'm pulling off License to Kill um, because to me that was my favorite of, of his even though a lot of people really just don't they don't respond to it as well and it's it's violent and it's gritty and a lot of people don't like that I don't think but um, I, I think it's interesting because like you were talking about with Tomorrow Never Dies, there's a lot of relevance actually to License to Kill uh, with um, crazy cult televangelists to, <laughs> you know, drug runners, you know. So yeah. uh, there, there's a lot in these movies sometimes that I think is funny when you watch them again and now and you're like, okay, I can unfortunately kind of see some of these things still in our world today. That's... <laughs> There's a handful of the Bond movies, um, License to Kill, uh, Die Another Day, even. Um, I would say Moonraker uh, as well, where the buildup, the the first, say, half of the movie, you really think, wow, we we are really on to something here. Yeah, yeah. And then something goes wrong and derails the whole thing. Um Moonraker has some great moments in it. It's got a great idea, a great premise behind it before you know that there's a space station and and, and a laser battle. Um, I really like Lois Childs in that movie. Um, I love the uh, the fight scene in the Venetian glass <laughs> factory. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the first half of that movie. Die Another Day, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the first half of great that movie. Great sword fight, like actual great sword fight. Right, wow, sure. Fun. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Sure, sure. sure. And, well, and, and Brosnan, I think, it, it says something about the actor playing Bond, where one of his most Bond moments is soaking wet beard grown out wearing the uh the pajama bottoms and he just strolls right into the hotel lobby and asks for his room yes and and, and it's just even looking that horrible he's james bond you know um and license to kill is another one of those movies where the build-up and the premise is so good i love the opening of that movie and i i like having david hedison back as felix it's mm-hmm. a great choice to have him. Um, but then I feel like things start to weaken when you introduce Pam Bouvier. Um, and even though I like the relevance of the TV evangelists and I like the relevance of the drug trade and I like Robert Davi as a bad guy, um, that movie, the closer you got to the end, felt like a made-for-TV movie. Maybe it's just to do with the budget. Maybe it's just to do with the the choice of locations. I mean, there's a number of factors that kind of add up to that. Um, But those are three movies where I think, man, everything was there for you. And at some point, they just forgot to make the really awesome movie it could have been. (laughs) 
it's almost like they ran out of vodka martinis right right you know it's just like oh well we're all on bud light now so right <laughs> let, let me ask you guys what are the bond movies you could do without if you just had to edit one right out of your collection octopussy okay could completely do without octopussy I haven't jumped on Diamonds or Forever yet, so that would probably be one I could omit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but also, yeah, Octopussy. It's not very memorable. You know, I, I mean, I, I really liked A View to a Kill and Octopussy just, it was, didn't have a lot of staying power. Um you know, the funny thing is about all of these films is you find something to latch onto because we've watched them so many times. Right. You know, you'll, you'll find something to eventually like because you're projecting something that, wow, I really, I could have seen George Lazenby do You Only Live Twice. Or I could have seen Timothy, Timothy Dalton do Goldeneye. Yeah. Or I could have seen um, Pierce Brosnan do, uh, say, Di- um like Moonraker or something like that. You know, there's yeah. always, because we know the characters so well, and we know the actors so well, and we know what they look like in our mind's eye. So there's all this transposition that's going on between, it's like reading a book. You know, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, your Gandalf could look like, you know, Surian McKellen, or your Gandalf could look like somebody else. It really just depends on who you want to insert for your avatar of that character at the time. Right. And I think because they're so well established, and we have the luxury of having repeated viewings of these movies over and over and over again for the last you know well i've been watching it for over 35 years Mm -hmm. those characters are now all in the same vein if you will if i need to throw in a tougher bond or a gentler bond or a suaver bond or this or that or the other thing because they've all done really well at some point in time with one really strong aspect of bond yeah some of them are again more rugged some of them are a little bit more debonair some of them clean up better than the others and some of them can just waltz across the hallway like you said with a raggedy beard and raggedy clothes and just pull that that bravado off yeah and all of them are that's the great thing about this is after craig whoever's next even if he may not be our choice eventually he will become james bond because we pour all of this information into this vessel and he inhabits everything that we want him to be not necessarily what he's giving us so but in daniel craig's case i think he's actually giving us something Mm -hmm. and i think whoever is going to follow him is gonna have his uh he's gonna have his martini glass shaken a little bit so right is there one that uh john you could you know, if, if it wasn't in the collection, you probably wouldn't miss it. Uh, you know, well, it's interesting. You both said Octopussy, and I, I would actually probably keep that one only because uh, I do like Louis Jardin. Um, uh, I love trains. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and when we get to Bond Girls, we'll talk about that as well. Um, I, I think the movie that everybody forgets is For Your Eyes Only. Um, because they tried to make Roger Moore a little more serious with that one, and it just sort of was very bland. So it'd either be between that one or A View to a Kill. Now, A View to a Kill 
I feel like it's another one of those where the premise, you start off great. The introduction of Zorin is mm-hmm. great. The introduction of Mayday is great. And by the time you squeeze Tanya Roberts into the movie and you end up in San Francisco, it just falls apart. So um, I might be able to delete one of those two from my collection. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think either. I mean, I kind of like For Your Eyes Only for some reason. I don't really know. Sheena uh, Easton. Yeah, oh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But it, I think it, I, yeah, it, Gosh, View to a Kill, you just knew that uh, Roger Moore was done. Uh, he had, He's sunny side up at that point, and we need a new James Bond yeah. because he's just too old to be kissing girls that young yeah. and it not feel like, you know, you've got Stan Lee at that point. <laughs> you know, like, that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's almost well like said. Stan, you right. know, Stan Lee is, is in there as James Bond, so just picture that, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so you mentioned this uh, favorite Bond girls, guys. Go, uh, Norman. I, mean, we I, I got a long list. I got a, Norman. You <laughs> might need to go first on this one. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little abstract on this answer, and I'm okay. gonna go with my favorite Bond girl. Always has been, and probably more so in the very first three or four appearances of her would be Money Penny. Oh yes, well, of course. I loved of young Lois Maxwell. Oh yeah. Oh my. Oh my. And oh my. Oh my. And probably because she gave James Bond what for every single time he came into the room. And obviously we're I'm going to jump from Dr. No right to Skyfall. We know that relationship. We know where that was forged and how it was forged. Maybe not all the details, but we know that there's a relationship there and the flirtation there is real. It's it's real caring, it's real sharing, it's money penny being both girlfriend and maternal figure to Bond because she wants him to come back from his mission. She needs James Bond in her life to complete her in some way. So every time that he leaves, and I loved it when she said this in uh from Rush with Love, she just looked and she goes, Bye. But she had this really forlorn expression on her face. Because she was, he was going up against some of the, some of the more dangerous enemies that I think he's faced, like a Red Grant, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's. I've always loved her responses to him and how he, I think, genuinely cared for her more than just a flirtation. It was someone who meant something to him. Now, again, with all of the other girls that are out there, I mean, you have your classics, you have your pussy galores, you have your honey riders. All fantastic. Um, Famke Jansen's Xenia on a top. I mean, come on. A, a woman, a spy who crushes her prey with legs. That's pretty, that's pretty clever. But Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. So, and I, and I loved, I always loved Lois Charles as Holly Goodhead. I thought she was really cool as a, as a leading lady. Uh, Britt Eklund, um, you know, in uh, Man with the Golden Man Gun. With the Golden Gun. Yeah. Gosh, the list could go on and on and on. But I, I do love Diana Rigg in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think she's just gorgeous. She's classy. She is the one iconic girl in James Bond's life that changes him tragically and drastically forevermore. And I thought she was fantastic in it because she held her ground against him. And it made her the pursuit that he could never really 
Well, eventually he did, but it was always something that he could just not bear to not win. And in the winning was this relationship and this love and in the loss changed him and became this. Any other woman after that just became something else. It will never become as important to him anymore as she was. So end my rant. <laughs> Go ahead, John. I've got some odd choices here, I think. Um, at the top of my list is Isabella Skorupko as Natalia and Goldeneye. Oh, sure. Um, probably oh, has yeah. nothing to do with her character and only to do with uh, my love of East- Eastern European women. Um, so There's nothing wrong with that. No. Oh, I will not apologize yeah. for that at all. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, then I go with uh, Barbara Bach as um, uh, Agent Triple X and the Spy Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she was very good, but I feel like it was also a missed opportunity because here was another time where the Bond movies were telling us we're going to have a strong woman and she's Bond's equal and she ends up being tied to the chair and has to get saved by James Bond. Um so every now and then, and, and I always say this, you know, if you go back and you read the interviews with the women who are playing the, you know, in air quotes, Bond girls, they always say the same thing, which is, well, you know, it, this is a strong, empowered female role and, and, you know, we're Bond's equal. And it's been said over and over and over again, and very rarely does that actually happen in a, in a truly groundbreaking way. Agent Triple X, there was the the tease of that. Given its shortcomings, I still really like Barbara Bach in that role. Um, I mentioned Octopussy earlier. Christina Wayborn as Magda. We didn't see nearly enough of her, but boy, did she stand out in that. I think she's gorgeous. She's exotic, striking, and she has great moments in her very short time on screen. Um, I, Norman, I agree with you. Lois Childs is Dr. Goodhead really really like her in that role she brings kind of a maturity to the bond women roles that you don't see in all the other characters um honor blackman of course um I, i'll even to say shirley eaton as uh, joe masterson again well, somebody we didn't see oh, enough yeah, of. yeah and shame on us that we haven't brought her up yet right. until now <laughs> right the most iconic female bond image ever Mm -hmm. is surely eaten painted in gold um domino and fiona from thunderball um, absolutely uh patricia from thunderball the masseuse just gorgeous you know and uh yeah and i figured you know mary goodnight Britt eckland in man with the golden gun um it's interesting to me because i I think it's a terrible character (laughs) but um a she's gorgeous and b there was something kind of cool about somebody who is that well known at that time because very often the bond girl is usually unknown or kind of just under the radar that's why denise Richards stands out as being this cameo like and now boom we just inserted denise richards into this movie kind of the same thing with brett eckland because she was so well known and i can't remember if at the time she was married to um Peter Sellers, I think she was in 1973 when that was made, 74. Well, that was like having Talisa Soto in License to Kill. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I think she's gorgeous, and I think she's fun. It's just, you know, if you're a woman in the 21st century watching that, you go, wow, this is kind of a lame character, <laughs> other than looking great in a bikini, you know. 
So, uh, yeah, you, you know, the list could go on and on and on and, and you could justify every choice, but, uh, but Matt, what have you got? Well, uh, you know, Norm already mentioned, and I, I already talked a little bit about Diana Rigg and, and I liked her because I felt like, uh, I, I think I responded to her because she, she felt more like a strong, confident woman, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm listening to Chandler's, uh, tapes at night. You are a strong confident woman um but but she she was a very different character than we had seen before and she's the first bond girl that actually rescues bond um you know he's down and out he has nowhere to go and she shows up and uh the way she shows up is just so adorable too you know she just skates up to him um with this uh, amazing you know uh and, and she's always classy like she's not She's she's never on display, you know. She's always got wonderful clothes on, and, and you know, there's there's not a lot of skin shown or anything like that. It's not titillating. She is, she's there because she's going to win Bond's heart, and she's not going to do it just by really. It's not just by opening her legs. It's because she is his equal. You know, she pushes him back. You know, all of those things. I, I think. To me, she was that Bond girl that just stood out among the rest, um, and that's what I really liked about her. And in and, and in some ways, the same way that Honor Blackman does a little bit with Bond, and yet, you know, there's also the whole thing of well, she's a lesbian, and only Bond's magic madness cures her. You know, I mean, so that that's 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 a little degrading to her as a character. Yeah. Um, it's a very outdated. Exactly. Um, And then, uh, to me, we haven't even mentioned her, but uh, until you get to Vesper, uh, you know, in um, Casino Royale, I don't think you really have a Bond girl that's as strong and tough as nails as Tracy until then. Mm -hmm. She really pushes Bond. She kind of makes him who he becomes. Uh, that relationship does the same thing for him that uh, Tracy's relationship does for him. It forges this coldness in him towards other women. You know, he fell in one with one woman. He's not going to do it again. And uh, I liked that, that kind of portrayal. Um, and then we talked a little bit about, but I love Naomi Harris's Eve Moneypenny um, in Skyfall. I, I think their relationship is just so fantastic, and it and it helps explain why... Uh, there is this real sexual tension between you know him and Money Penny and Doctor No, and throughout the rest of the films, and yet they never play on it. Once she goes to work for M, he's off. She's off limits. But they have a previous thing and a previous connection that you know if they were in another life, they may have ended up together. Um, but uh, now that it's where it is at the end of Skyfall, it can't go any farther anymore. So, I. Uh, that and she I just like her as an actress I think Naomi Harris just has something for that role in the same way that um, the original Money Penny did and I, I'm excited to see her again in, in Bond 24 and, and that's where I want to go before we wrap up this is before the big announcement we are actually recording the night before the announcement so it's it's fun for us to have gotten a chance to talk bond with you guys uh here for the 602 and kind of get you excited for what we will know is coming now with bond 24 but we do know sam mendes is back now 
John Logan is back as well, uh, returning uh, as a screenwriter. We do have uh, the the announcement that it looks like Christoph Waltz is going to be playing a Bond villain, which is fantastic. And as well, uh, the, the Mirror from the UK is actually reporting that Andrew Scott is also going to be one who played Moriarty against the fantastic Benedict Cumberbatch in the new Sherlock series. So with all these guys back, what are you guys hoping just to see from a Bond 24? We we don't know very much, but with Skyfall being so fantastic, it almost feels a little bit like, okay, we've reached our Star Trek 2, and now what do we do next? Well, that's a great analogy, actually. Yeah. John, if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't do it. Yeah. Um, they have to be really careful here. We are... It can go one way or the other way, depending on how they choose to balance the next movie. Because you're right, we are in our Star Trek II. Uh, we had this great and now um, universally accepted and legendary Skyfall. Skyfall is the movie that, agree. I agree with what John said, it's the movie that needed to be made so that James Bond found his audience, solidified his audience, and solidified the fact that he is now this character that people can relate to and want to see evolve forward. But how do they do that without succumbing to bigger and better and bolder and brasher? Because sometimes that's where studios like to push these movies. And it could be a huge Die another day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, and look what happened. That I mean, that kind of ended. That ended Pierce right there, you know. And it kind of left a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And I think that Bond right now is at such a really good place that the writers and, and Sam and all the casting they have to make sure that they are they're stepping in the right direction, and that is to continue the mission moving forward. It doesn't have to be Dr. No, like you said, John, it doesn't have to be something that we've seen before, but we want to make sure that they're not disrespecting audience expectation at the same time. They're, they're not respecting the bond trappings and tropes that came before. Sometimes you want to be taken out of your normal lifestyle and have the, the dream life that bond always gives you, you know, you want to be able to go off to, Morocco or to Budapest or to Istanbul or to all these because that's what we love about James Bond we want to be able to ride along with him and jump on the plane and spend other people's money and get the girl or get the guy and but how do you do that without unbalancing all of this great groundwork that you've already put into place that's that's really the key here I think they're going to do great but it has to be better than Skyfall in order to maintain that momentum, but is better than Skyfall pushing it in a direction that is unsustainable. Um, yeah, well said. You know, I, I always get nervous when somebody says, the next movie is going to be so great, we've doubled the budget, and we're going to have more action scenes, more effects, bigger explosions. I don't care. You're already making movies that are nearly $200 million. It, it, so what? If you spend $10 million more, $20 million more, $50 million more, it doesn't mean you'll have a better movie. Um, 
to continue the uh, the Star Trek analogy, first of all, it's amazing to me that John Logan, the guy who wrote Nemesis, has written so many other great movies, <laughs> you know. But I know that Nemesis had its own problems. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's not really necessarily his fault. Apparently, he wrote a pretty good script that people were happy with, and then the director just destroyed yeah. it. Yeah. So, luckily, <laughs> Sam Mendes has a great track record. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so the, yeah, there is that. And, you know, one of the things that I liked about Star Trek 2009 is the idea that you can come along, you can reinvent, reinterpret, uh, I, I hesitate to say reboot, <laughs> but, um, and you can change the stakes. So if you come along and you blow up Vulcan, you go, wow, okay, truly nothing is safe in this version of telling this story. So we don't know what's going to happen next. That was one of my disappointments with Into Darkness is that as soon as you introduce Khan, you do know what's going to happen next, <laughs> you know? But they changed the rules enough in the first movie where I could stay attached to the characters but really wonder what was coming. And with Bond... Um, I feel like with Skyfall, we kind of achieved that that reboot, reinvention, reinvigoration, where, like I said before in this show, you tear the character down to the bare essentials, just absolutely pick him apart, and you end that movie with the most intimate possible scene, with M getting stabbed in the back, and then just the slow rebuild to show the character of Bond back to where we sort of understand him justify the things about him the you know the character of m and the character of money penny and the old office and the padded door you start to say to an audience okay this is where that stuff came from that you thought was weird hokey out of place out of date this is why we have it now so what's cool about that is the character is solid but you have just opened up this whole wide world where you get to do anything with bond again because it's a new game. It's a new character. It's a new set of relationships that he's got. Um, I hope, and I, and I hope that if the filmmakers hear this, they don't take it the wrong way. I hope that there is some levity in the next Bond. And I don't hope that they make jokes. And I don't want to see the, you know, Moonraker pigeon giving a double take. <laughs> you know, I don't want that. And I don't want a Beach Boys song being played during a chase scene. I don't want that at all. But I want Bond or at least some of the characters in it to be able to relax for a moment, take a breath, you know, because these last few movies have been very intense and very serious. And Daniel mm -hmm. Craig has shown that he can play intense and serious. But let's also temper that with something so that those moments don't then lose their punch. As glad as I am that we have Sam, Sam Mendes back uh, and John Logan, I'd love it if we could keep Roger Deakins, but I don't think that's happening because Skyfall was the best looking Bond movie of any Bond movie. Um, it really was. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Every frame of that was gorgeous. And um, I don't know, could we get Marvin Rush? <laughs> could we get, I don't know who, but... Uh, I'm really sad that we're losing Roger Deakins. Uh, that uh, apparently, as far as I understand, he will not be the DP on the next movie. So that's sad. Uh, but yeah, that's about it. And hey, if Christoph Waltz is playing Blofeld, great, fantastic. 
I think that, uh, you know, for me, one of the things that they've done with with Skyfall is that really, God, I feel like we have had that 50-year-old scotch, you know, and you're like, okay, well, what do I go, where do I go from here? You know, do I just get, see if I can find a 60-year-old bottle? And that's really what I feel like this needs mm-hmm. to be, is this needs to be that, that even that next level, you know, we need that 60-year-old bottle of scotch now. And that doesn't mean that you have to go bigger and bolder. Uh, and and brassier and all of those kind of things, you know. When when you when you have a, a great scotch, it's about the nuances. It's about the, the the those little things that just set it apart. And that's where I think this next film needs to go. Uh, I'm with you, John. I do think that levity. There was a little bit more of it in Skyfall. Every once in a while, Daniel Craig makes a joke. And it's funny, mm-hmm. um, but he just gives a little quip, and then they just they added a little bit more in there. And so this film, I think you can do that a little bit more. We don't need a ton of it. It doesn't need to turn into a you know a Roger Moore thing where he has to have a you know a quippy saying for every single thing that he does. But this character, I think, has gotten just a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're kind of through the dark times with him a little bit, and now we can lighten up just a bit. And I think if you add that with uh, a great villain like Christoph Waltz and, uh, you know, even an, um, Andrew Scott, uh, that's fantastic. You, you've got a great cast around him um, now with Ray Fiennes and, and Naomi Harris and, and the rest coming back. Uh, we're poised, I think, for another great film I don't think that they feel like we have to add more explosions or any of those things. I think what they realized with Skyfall is it's about the character. We're coming back because we're getting to know the character of James Bond, maybe for the first time in a in, in just a whole new way. And uh, I'm hoping that this character can just die another day because I want to keep seeing him back. And I want to keep seeing at the end of the title card, James Bond will return. And I'm hoping that when this one ends, we'll at least get one more Craig film. Because uh, it would be nice to have, you know, a five film set here. Especially with just the unfortunate nature of, of what happened to Quantum of Solace. And, and again, I don't, I don't fault anybody there. I don't think it's really anybody's fault. It was just circumstance uh, that got in the way. And obviously, I think... That's the case when we see with what they were able to do with fantastic writers and an amazing director with Skyfall. So I'm I'm just excited to see what comes next. You know, it, there's usually that, um, I, I assume it's still going on, but Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson alternate mm-hmm. yeah. producer duties on the movies. And um, I, I feel like you know, I hope it's not the case, but I feel like Bond falls into that every other movie problem where Die Another Day really sucked. Casino Royale <laughs> yeah. was great. Quantum of Solace got another problem movie. And then Skyfall is fantastic. So I hope that if we're still alternating producer duties, it doesn't mean that the next one is going to fall into the traps that those other movies fell into. Um, I hope that because the creative team is the right creative team, that it continues on this trajectory because Skyfall laid the groundwork. It's there. Like, it's ready for you. Here, just take it and make a great movie. So we will see what happens. What I'd really like to see 
and it's because we've seen them carefully pay a lot of respect to the bonds that came before and establish again the the trappings and the and the the traditions of what came before. I mean, we even brought in like the DB5, we brought in all these different icons that that all of the audiences know of Bond. I'd like for this next film to start its own mythology, mm. its own signature elements that become more of what we now should expect from James Bond, something a little bit more modernized. And, now, and then for, say, audiences 10, 15, 20 years later, they will say, this is what my James Bond did. This is what my James Bond had. This is what my James Bond was about. Because now he has caught up to this modern version, this modern retelling of a 50-year-old character. It's almost as if they're creating this demarcation point and saying, okay, Daniel Craig is my James Bond, and this is what he has given me for my new tradition of the James Bond that I can claim as my own. So it would be nice to, again, I'm not sure what those elements are, but a new signature villain or villains, a new signature signature way of doing things, a new relationship with Q Branch, or maybe not Q Branch, who knows, but something that is more definitively this generation's bond so they can have something to say that's who i like it won't be a a venetian gondola hovercraft i can tell you that right now whatever that thing is i don't think we need that one back um you know maybe you know bringing back uh the the quantum idea instead of it being you know a specter kind of thing you know that they've already kind of built that mythology so maybe Mm -hmm. use that maybe try and redeem some of that um, especially if you're going to have kind of a Blofeld type character or Blofeld, maybe we don't have a be ahead of Spectre because that's a goofy name. Uh, we've already got a quantum. Let's use that. So I, I think this is something that they have done a fantastic job of, of, like you said, Norm, giving us all of the tools we need to continue to create very good Bond films that have the look and the feel of our time so that when we share them with our kids one day that they can kind of have an understanding as as they're going to see hopefully new Bond films for them. I, I think it's funny that, that, that some of the greatest uh, entertainment franchises are British and have been around for 50 years. So whether it's James Bond or Doctor Who... These guys really know how to keep us coming back for more. Thunderbirds. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> Faulty Towers. Faulty yeah. Towers. yeah. There you go, Monty Python. I mean, geez. Well, guys, it has been so fantastic just sitting around and geeking out about Bond with y'all today. But it's definitely not the only thing we've been talking about on Track FM for the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And and so I was biased against it. it even when I started buying the, the two-disc collector's edition DVDs, I avoided buying any of the even-numbered movies. Odd-numbered movies. movies. <laughs> Earl Grey. Like, uh, like they stated in the end of the movie, you know, they thought he'd outlive all of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's what should have happened. We should have seen Data, like, in the... You know, 26th century, like Data 5.0, whatever we call them. To the journey! You don't know if she's going to stab him or smooch him. 
She's gonna smooch him, of course. After dessert. <laughs> After dessert. We all know what dessert means. Warp five. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in, in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan Mind Meld. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And my thought was in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean. Commentary, Trek stars. Everything you would imagine would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there. I think the shot that really does it for me, the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball. <laughs> Melodic Treks. So we do know an awful lot of people get associated with Vic Fontaine. He name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he with. One of whom is Frank Sinatra. Axenar, the official podcast. When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained, it can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club. What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do it better? Uh, first of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, it makes uh, me feel sad for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. That helps us out greatly. And it makes it easier for those listeners to find the show as they search in iTunes. Guess what, though? If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Now, guys, John, thank you so much for being here today. Tell everybody where they can find you online. Thank you. Um, yeah, the best place is Mission Log Podcast. So we're at missionlogpodcast.com. And on Twitter and Facebook, we are Mission Log Pod. Uh, so every week we do an episode talking about a single episode or movie of Star Trek in order. As of now, we're kind of creeping up on the end of season one of Next Gen. So, um, and I'm told that there is more Star Trek after that. So, uh, yeah, I know it's Shocking. weird. Mm. Uh, well, I'm just waiting for you and Ken to grow the beard. So, <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and finally change out of these tight fitting spandex costumes. Yeah, that's you know, got to be chafing. really every week doing that is uh, <laughs> wearing on us. <laughs> so, And Norm, where can we find you? Well, you can always find me on Twitter and Facebook at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Star Trek Axanar project. You can find me on the Star Trek Axanar Facebook page. But I'm also a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon. And I'm an associate producer of Warp 5, The Orb, this fantastic show, The 602 Club, and Star Trek Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. Another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
if you visit Patreon slash Trek FM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM, you'll find our current goals and our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks that we have for you. These perks do include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support that you can give us, and we hope that you will join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Also, you can contact us at trek.fm slash content. Just choose a show and select the form there. Fill it out. It'll email us. We'll get that. You can also leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. Of course, we're on Twitter, at TrekFM. Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM. And also on the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at TrekFM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, I'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for the show is audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books that you've always wanted to read but never thought that you'd have time for. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we thank Audible for their support of the 602 Club and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. And guys, you can also find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Literary Treks with Chris and Dan talking about the books and comics of Star Trek. And of course, I do The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And I do have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank y'all so much for listening. And y'all come back now, you hear? Hear?